Good morning. My name is Spencer Bros, and I'm the other new pastor here at St. Stephen's Church. And as we go to God's Word this morning, I want to give a little background on where we are in, in the Scripture. We're going to land in the middle of 1 Samuel. We visited 1 Samuel a few weeks ago when we visited Samuel himself and his call to ministry. In the meantime, between that story and this one, the people of God, uh, people of Israel, proclaimed that they wanted a king because, you know, all our neighbors have kings. We should have a king too. It just is, looks right that we do that. So they picked one, Saul. Samuel wasn't behind it, but he did the thing and anointed him to be king. But it turns out that Saul followed God's way for a little bit, but then fell away. So as they're looking for a new king, this is where we uh, land in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I name to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? He said, peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab, Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse met, made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has chose, not chosen any of these. Samuel said to Jesse, are all of your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Samuel then set out and went to Ramah. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. In the spring of 1999, um, Lori and I had the opportunity to go with a church group to Israel. And I know that year because it was in between seminary and children. So that was one, we had one year. So we went with a group from the church and, and her parents and grandparents actually were able to join us. And, and it's just an amazing experience to walk in what we call the Holy Land. It is such an ancient and old place. 
civilization there is beyond my capacity to really comprehend how long it has been there. And that's not even the longest civilization has been um, in the world. So you go and you, and you walk all these places, and one place we walked up was a hill, and as they dug deeper, they, they, they found a city, but then they found a city below that city, and then they found a city below those cities, and it goes down and down and down, and they keep digging until they run out of cities, and it's called a, they call it a tell. In other places, when you, particularly when you go to Jerusalem, and, and you, you go to the places where this has to be the place. For instance, on Jesus, uh, the night before of his arrest, they goes to the Mount of Olives. There's one olive uh, orchard. I don't know if they're orchards or gardens or whatever. Uh, on, on that mountain. And the reason why they know it's that one, because those trees live for thousands of years. It's ridiculous how old those trees alone are. And you walk on those places, and you know this is generally the place where these things happened. And it was... It was incredibly um, powerful and meaningful. Then other times we would, we would uh, our tour guide would just stop us on the side of the road for different things. We stopped on the side of the road for lunch for, to eat St. Peter's fish. This was so, totally a touristy thing. The locals never set foot in there, I'm sure, to eat. But it was a fish caught in the Sea of Galilee, right? And they'd leave the head on, just saying. And then another time we were driving past a bunch of sheep. And there was a boy with his donkey right there with him. So we pulled over, and, and the, our native guide was Palestinian, so he was speaking to this boy. And you see a ruddy kid, muddy, dirty, just small, and probably stinky. We didn't get that close. But he's taking care of the sheep there. And that's often, if not always, was the case for shepherds. It was the youngest kid. It was your turn. Once you were old enough to do it, you did it. You took care of the sheep. And they missed out on a lot. Samuel came to make a sacrifice. This was a huge spiritual occasion for Samuel, the prophet of God, the priest of the temple, um, priest, the priest of the people to come out and offer sacrifice. And yet the youngest isn't there because that's what they do. They miss out on a lot. In, in Hebrew uh, teaching also, the shepherds were almost always ritually unclean because they tended to the sheep. They did things that made them unable to enter into the holy places. Yet here we see in Scripture, David had come. Oh, and that little boy, he hopped on his little donkey and trotted off. It was kind of cool, but anyway, you didn't even know that. But we see David come in, and I, I picture that little boy on that hillside his curly, dark curly hair and, and dirty and just tiny, small. Nothing stood out about him except he was in the midst of the sheep. Now we understand there are some distinguishing factors of David. He was handsome, he had beautiful eyes, but he was ruddy, muddy, and, and the smallest of his brothers. His oldest brother, Samuel, was ready to do it right there, to proclaim him before he even waited for the Lord. He was tall. He looked the part. And God said, nope. To all seven of his brothers. And then he gets to David. And says, this is the one. This is your next king. And he would end up being the king that all of Israel continues to look back at. 
as being the one true king of Israel until we get to Christ himself. So as we look at David's life, he has been many things. He has, holds many roles. He's the, the youngest son of eight. He's a shepherd because of that. He's a musician. He becomes an armor bearer. He's a giant slayer. He's a rebel warrior. And he's a king. And in each one of those stages, we see different attributes of, of David. And we can learn different things from different stages of his life about how we live with God as well. So we know of David that he was born in Bethlehem. You probably would know that even if you just read the, uh, the birth accounts of Jesus. When they went back to Bethlehem because of the census, and they were of the people, the tribe of, uh, the people of David. So they went back to Bethlehem for that. The tribe of Judah, the most prominent of the tribes. He was great, uh, Ruth's great-grandson. You may or may not be aware of that. Ruth is an earlier uh, book in the Bible. And we learn that uh, he is of that in that family's lineage. And as we watch David uh, learn about him as a shepherd, there were things that shepherds had to do to take care of their sheep. It wasn't just guiding them and, and leading them and, and keeping them from walking off of cliffs. It was protecting them and it was healing them. It was doing all those things that must be done. And Samuel comes and sees this messy boy eventually and is like, okay, God. I'm trusting you. And he anointed him to be king, but he wasn't going to be king, at least officially, not yet, because Saul still sat on the throne. And as I said, he ceased to please God in what he did. And as such, he started to feel this spiritual pressure, and so the people suggested they hire a musician. Guess who that was? That's David and his a lyre, a little harp. He came and he played beautifully and for, it helped Saul with his, his pressure, his migraines it might have felt like, who knows, but it helped soothe Saul's soul. And it seems that David went back and forth between the court and playing music and then tending his father's sheep and one day he ends up close to where the Israelites and the Philistines were fighting, not because of his court duties, but because of his shepherding duties. And when he heard Goliath mock God, he knew, he, he knew something needed to happen. He decided then it was there for him to do it. And as, as David goes with his sling now, and it's not the, the Dennis the Menace in the back of his pocket sling, it's the whirl around sling. Uh, and from what I understand, it would be like uh, shooting a 45 uh, revolver. Because the density of the stones in that valley are twice as dense as typical rocks as well. And it comes off that fast, off that sling. And he, he slays Goliath and the whole country praises him as a hero. And Saul's soul sinks deeper into darkness still. He's jealous of this now young man who's growing up in his uh, growing up in the sheep fields, but also in his courts. Saul makes David in charge, of, uh, in charge of the army. Even though he's uh, jealous of him, it was the correct thing to do, I guess, politically speaking. <laughs> but he still tried to kill him. But David makes friends with Jonathan, Saul, one of Saul's sons, and marries one of his daughters, Michal. And at some point, at different points of time, each of them saves David's life from their father. 
Eventually David ran away from the court. Saul sent his army out there. And even though David had opportunities to kill Saul himself, he doesn't do that. That's not his job. And eventually Saul is slain in his sleep by two of David's warriors. So at that point, David becomes king of Judah. And it's it's a distinction between king of Israel and king of Judah. Judah was just one tribe. It was the largest tribe, but it was just one tribe. And the goal was to unite all 12. They had come through the desert as, as one group, still identifying within their 12 tribes. But when they got to the promised land and they were ruled by judges, they divided up into the places where Moses had sent them to go or Joshua uh, had sent them to go. So they started to be just tribes once again. But the goal was to unite all of the kingdoms. And so one of Saul's sons was still the, the king of the northern part, of the uh, part of, that was considered Israel. Uh, David was king of just Judah for seven and a half years, but then he was king of the uh, united country for 33. And there were years of stability that were followed by years of brokenness. You may be familiar with David's story in that although he had as much, if not more, than anyone could ever hope for, he sees a woman who he wants and commits adultery with her, and to hide his shame and her pregnancy, sends her husband out to die on the front lines of battle. By then, Samuel has handed over leadership. Samuel has passed, and now Nathan is the the voice of God in David's court, and he comes to David and starts to tell him this story. And as Nathan reveals the story, David becomes aware that the story is really about him. It's not about sheep. It's about him. And he repents and is grieved, and God forgives him. But even though God forgives him of that sin, those consequences continue to have effects throughout Israel's history and time and even among David's family. We know of David that despite his flaws, however, he remained a man after God's own heart to the very end. And God promised him that his throne would endure forever and would the fulfillment of of David's throne would be in the person of Jesus Christ. As we come, as we have come to understand that and believe that later on. There is, like I said, a lot of things we can learn from the life of David. And one of those things is that when we have a heart for God, it makes us available to serve. When we have a heart for God, it makes us available to serve. It puts us in the place to be available to God, not necessarily in that exact moment, but for when the time is right. We know of David that even before Samuel put his blessing upon, put God's blessing upon David, that he already had a heart for God. God said, this one, this is one right here. Then God filled him with his spirit, but he already had a heart for God. It made him available to God to be ready for when God was ready to use him because David wasn't going to sit on the throne right away. He would have visited the throne room eventually and start playing for the the uh, the current king Saul but it would take a while and that's true in our lives as well as that when we make ourselves available to God and I said this in Samuel's in the sermon about Samuel too uh, a ministry of availability making ourselves available to God and it's about having a heart that yearns for God above all else 
And it puts you on the, on the balls of your feet. It puts you in the ready stance to do whatever it is that God is going to call you to do, whether it's in the next three minutes or the next three years. You're ready. You're ready. In your stance, but maybe not in your gifts. And God spends that time getting you ready for what's next. And that's the next thing. Um, that I think we can learn from, from David's story is that God is preparing for us for our next with our now. God prepares us for our next with our now. David, as the shepherd, wouldn't have to learn and know how to um, protect his sheep. What did he do that with? He had that shepherd's staff, but he also had the sling. God was preparing him for the giant Goliath while David was still a shepherd boy. David learned how to live in royal life and in military life and was making friends in the right places when he was Saul's attendant, when he was his musician, when he was his armor bearer. He learned what it meant to live within that royal place and how things moved and who the people were. David learned how to rule. What I, what I forgot to mention is while David has run away from Saul, he makes friends with the, the Philist, one of the Philistine kings, and that king makes him in charge of a city from where he ends up uh, sending his, his forces from to fight against Saul. He learned how to rule as he ruled over that city. God prepares us for our next in the now. My favorite part of the Lord of the Rings books didn't make it in the movie. Well, there are about two parts that I really like that didn't make it in the movie. But the one I'm going to talk about now is the very end of the third book. If you're not familiar with the Lord of the Rings story, I can't, it's three books long. I can't get you there. But I can help you. There are uh, four hobbits. The story kind of revolves around these four hobbits. There are dwarves, there are elves, there are wizards, there are rangers, and there's all kinds of others. Those are the good folks, and then there's bad folks. And they have the job to destroy the one ring, right? If you know the story, you destroy the one ring. And at the end of the third, toward the end of the third book, it's almost the end, but not quite. They do the thing that they were sent to do. Hurrah. And they go home. And in the movie, we see them go home. And at home, their home, it's called the Shire, is a place of peace and they are welcomed. It's not a celebration. They're not who huge crowds they didn't know what had happened but they go back to their peaceful shire in the book however the leftover evil from before has found its way to their home and they get there and it's just the four of them there are no wizards to help no elves no dwarves no rangers none of the help that they had received throughout the the previous three books or the rest of the three books they get there and it's just the four and they find out because of all that they had done, all the journeys, all the hardships that they had endured, they were ready. They were enough to handle what they found when they got back home. I love that part of the story and it's not in the movies. I get it. It was hard. It was already a three-hour movie. I get it. But God pr prepares us for what's next in our now. We just have to be open to learn from those lessons. Another thing we learned from David that it's better to trust God than be nine feet tall. It's better to trust God than to, to depend upon human strength and stature and power. David 
a young man, I, I, I don't imagine he ever got to be tall because that's not why he was chosen to be king. And he was a, a small enough person that he couldn't wear Saul's armor. Try, Saul tried to give him his armor when he said he was going to go out and fight Goliath. But he can't wear it. It's too heavy. It weighs him down. So he goes out with what he had on anytime he went to go shepherd the sheep. And he had his trusty sling. And he trusted God to go out there and face the giant. The giant with a sword that would be as tall, taller than I am, and armor, and muscles. And David with a tunic and a sling, and he trusts God. Our world teaches us that we should seek things that make us strong or powerful or um, more beautiful or skinny or more fit or all these other things that we're supposed to be more of when really we're supposed to just start with trusting God. Trust God's power and wisdom more than we trust our own strength and cleverness. Societal and cultural norms drive us to seek positions of power, whether it's a social hierarchy, a business hierarchy, political hierarchy, and so on. But God calls us to trust in his power, his authority. And then watch how things unfold. In the end, being stronger, faster, prettier, skinnier, or whatever, all those things go away eventually. Hair goes away eventually. Well, mine did. But trusting God, having a close and trusting relationship with God, overcomes and endures. And then I think one of the most powerful lessons comes from the story of David and Bathsheba, Uriah, and Nathan. David commits a grievous sin. A grievous sin. In any culture, what he did was a grievous sin. And if you need to go back and read that story, I encourage you to go back in First and Second Samuel. And yet God, through Nathan, offers him the opportunity of forgiveness. And as Nathan tells the story of the sheep and the ewe, David becomes convinced of his sin and eventually repents of that sin, turns away from the sins, acknowledges that it was a really bad thing, and I'm not going to do that anymore. And God offers him forgiveness. And God continues to call him a man after his own heart. Some of the hardest moments I've had with folks in, in a pastoral care situation is when they can't accept that truth. There are other hard things. But when they can't accept the truth, when they've done something really bad, you don't understand how, bad, how many people I hurt, how, how far this spread, the ripples of this, or even if it's just mine, my own, and I don't feel like it's spread beyond anything, but it's just too big for God to forgive. It's not. It's not. No sin of ours is too big for God's grace. No sin. He just invites us to seek forgiveness, to turn away from it, and to keep moving forward. 
that moment after Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan, it didn't mean that David left a perfect life afterwards. He surely did not. But he learned and he grew. But above all, he continued to seek after the things of God. And one last thing. David teaches us how to learn God, to live with God's no. David built the castle, the, the place where the royalty of Israel would live. But David really wanted to build God's temple. And he could have. Except God said, no. No, David, you're a man after my own heart, but no. I've got a plan for this. One of your ancestors will take care of this. This was, this was the end of what you're doing as far as building things. Your name is not going to be built upon building things. By the way, Herod the Great, Jesus, two-year-old, kills all the babies. His name was built upon building things. God doesn't want our names built upon building things. That's a, that's a preview to Christmas story, I guess. But, but we see it reflected in David's life. God doesn't want his name built upon building things. It's built upon serving him and, and following his will and his way. In our lives, no prayer goes unanswered. No prayer goes unanswered. And sometimes it is a resounding yes, yes, here you go. Or yes, go for it, or whatever. Sometimes it's a yes, but. Yes to the what, but mm, to the how. We, 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 when we say, ask God for things and, or, or seek God's help in things, and we say, this is the what, and this is how I think you ought to do it, God. We don't know, y'all don't do that. Do you do that? I, are y'all awake? Do we need more coffee? All right. Sometimes God just says, just trust me with the how, but I'll say yes to the what. Sometimes God says, not yet. Just not yet. It's not no. It's not yes. It's just not yet. Sometimes it's just a straight, flat no. I love you, but no. And David learned to live with that. I'm sure that was not an easy no to live with. David had done many things and was ready to do that too. But we can learn from David's life that sometimes we just have to live with the no, or even the not yet. There are a lot of lessons in David's life. I had a list of like 15 things. You're welcome. We're going to get out before 12, even though this is a 9 o'clock service. And I hope you and encourage you to explore his story on your own, because there is a lot to learn, a lot of things to do and a lot of things to avoid, and a lot of things uh, to, to skip altogether. But from David's life, we can learn that to have a heart of, for God is, is better than anything else we could have in this world. And it makes us available for whatever it is that is God is calling us to. We can learn from David God's lessons of that he prepares us for ne the next in the middle of the now. We just have to be receptive to the lessons that we're learning, that God is teaching. To seek God's strength through us than rather to seek strength on our own that God can forgive any sin no matter how great and calls us to repentance and even though we have a heart for God we make ourselves available even though we seek God's strength will and way God's answer to our prayers sometimes is still no or not yet
doesn't mean that we've lost favor with God, just that God has other plans in motion. But I think it all goes back to having a heart for God, trusting in God, seeking the things that please God first and foremost. I think that's the core lesson in David's life. He forgets it sometimes. We forget it sometimes. But God extends forgiveness. He gives us opportunity to return and to try again. May we learn those lessons and more from the life of David as we seek to be people after God's own heart. Amen. Let's enter into a time of prayer now. Uh, First, a time of, of quiet, just to spend with God. Whether you're reflecting on something that you overheard God uh, say or mention to you uh, in the previous parts of the service, the sermon, or, or even before. Or maybe uh, you have some things on your heart that you'd like to lay before God, and this is just a good time to do that. I'll lead us in prayer after that, and then we have the opportunity to lift up the Lord's Prayer together with one voice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for calling us before your throne, calling us into your presence. You are always with us, wherever we go. You're even already there, ready to welcome us and receive us. But Lord, in worship, and even more so in prayer, you call us to your presence in a deeper way, in a more purposeful way that helps us to know more your heart. And as we enter into this holy conversation, or may it be just that, help us to listen as much, if not uh, more, than we speak. Help us to be open to what it is that you have to share with us. Help us to be willing to receive it and to act upon it. That we might trust you in all things, above all things, through all things. And Lord, as we come together today, we also come with the stuff that we brought through the doors. We can't leave it at home. It's a part of us. And while we try not to ponder and and think on those things while we're gathered, they're still here. Lord, we lay them all at your feet. All All of the trials and hardships, all of the challenges and concerns, 
Lord, we come this morning seeking uh, healing and wholeness for those who are injured or ill. We come seeking forgiveness and mercy and compassion for ourselves as we stray from your will and from your way. We come seeking guidance and direction for all who are wandering and wondering about what the future holds. And so much more. And Lord, just as we seek after your will and your way, just as we acknowledge the needs within us, around us, and around the world, we also come giving thanks for every good thing comes from you. Your word reminds us that. And the greatest of all is your Son, our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us now pray the prayer that Jesus himself has taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. At this time, I would like to uh, invite our ushers.